Joab, David's nephew, Amnon, David's oldest son, or David himself? Who's the worst person in that family? (laughs) (laughs) I wondered where you were going with that. For the sake of the podcast audience who may not necessarily be able to know those names right offhand. No, that's good. That's cool. So I've been reading the Old Testament just very, very filthy casually without any sort of commentary or anything um, <laughs> because I'm, I'm, I'm sketching out outlines for, um, for some dramatic material that me and our friend Jen, who's been on the podcast, are writing up and uh, specifically looking at the narratives of women in the Old Testament. Um, <laughs> when you get to second, when, anytime you get to, to King David and his entire family, you're like, Cool, so it's not going to go well for anyone who is Isn't female. Isn't that just like the Old Testament in a nutshell, though? Well, that's the, that's the interesting thing, because there are some things where I'm like, oh, I'm actually surprised by, I'm surprised by joy. Um, but, yeah, sorry, I had to do that. I am very tired. <laughs> oh, man. I know. I you, know. You, did, you did that. I did. I'm so tired. Um, but, but, yeah, I mean... Very specifically, anything that has to do with King David. I think, yeah, anyway. So, Joab is David's nephew, and he ultimately murders Abner for murdering his brother, but he, like, out of... Oh, yeah, that. Yeah, because he's he's he wants revenge, and David's like, don't do it, and he's like, uh, I'm gonna do it, and he does it anyway. Um, and it's really just the... The way it's the way it's written out in the um, English Standard Version is just it it made me chuckle despite the situation. <laughs> when Joab came out from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner, and they brought him back from the cistern of Sirah. But David did not know about it. And when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside in the midst of the gate to speak with him privately, and there he struck him in the stomach. So at that he died for the blood of Ashel as his brother. So he was just like, here, let me talk to you for a second. Stab! Yep. <laughs> casual, casual, casual. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Amnon, you'll know for that fun little, fun little tale of the rape of Tamar, which is great. Ah, uh, yeah. And feels yeah. very sort of like Greek tragedy slash like Shakespearean tragedy. Just, I mean, like tragedy. It's definitely a tragedy, but it kind of reminds me of Othello a lot because this is how this goes down. Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's other son, loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin. Because why else would there be any reason to love anybody with the fact that she has sexual purity? And it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. Well, yeah, because you're related. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab. Jonadab is who reminds me of Iago. Okay. Because Jonadab was a very crafty man, according to Second Samuel. And he said to him, Oh, son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? So Am- Amnon tells him, ultimately. And Jonadab just said to him, Lie down on your bed and pretend to be sick. 
And when your sister comes to see you, say to him, let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat and prepare the food in my sight so that I may see it and eat it from her hand. So that's some, that's manipulative AF. Oh yeah. 100%. Yeah. So I read that. I was like, oh gosh, I, you know, you, you initially think that it's just Amnon, but no, Jonadab, that's the Iago in the situation. I want to know how manipulative he was. And then, you know, David, because of the everything about him. What with Bathsheba and whatnot. Yeah. Everyone knows that story. No one wants to talk about that story. Yeah. People, but. while he is named and anointed as one or a man after God's own heart, mm-hmm. that doesn't come with complicated issues. Yeah. No, one of my favorite interpretations of King David, because everyone goes crazy with the idea of like, King David being the ultimate sort of um, example of a political figure. And then they try to like make American essentialism out of the whole interpretation of the King David story. It's great because that's totally, that totally tracks. But I had a, a clergy member once tell me that all that you learn about King David and his relationship with God is that God is just not that picky. That he will just use whomever to carry out his will so long as they are willing uh, to do so. And I just really appreciated that that's, <laughs> that that's what she said. Because cause again, like when you hear that interpretation over and over and over again of how special David is, you're just like, okay, well, I've got to like emulate David. And then sometimes people take it to the extreme of like even his faults. If I have the same type of faults or if a political figure has the same type of faults he does... Well, then that must mean um. he's chosen. <laughs> and I just sit there and I'm like, that's what you get from that? Ugh. Right, yeah. There are whole books uh-huh. in certain circles that are written about King David and how he is the model on which we should follow everything. Because, you know, everyone's supposed to be a mercenary that runs around kid- killing men, women, and children just for the price of everything I just, and for what he does but i just i don't understand like we have christ why would you need another it doesn't make sense to me why you just like uh-huh yeah yeah jesus is good but i want like the prequels as examples for myself <laughs> all right right i feel like that's uh a big part of it is like oh man we've we've really got to figure out a way to redeem this this angry ot god we gotta we gotta yeah. do something here all right david yeah. He's like this guy after God's own heart, right? Mm-hmm. Like, therefore, he must be the best opportunity that we have to, yeah. to redeem this otherwise horrible and apparently useless tome of, of pre-happy God lore. Mm-hmm. Oh, gosh. And the amount of times in college that I'd heard that phrase, man after God's own heart, and then used as, an, as, as a phrase to describe like uh-huh. other people that... that, that others like wanted me to consider dating they're like oh he's just like he's just a man after god's own heart i'm like shouldn't we all be shouldn't you be shouldn't you be more concerned about me being a woman after god's own heart than me dating somebody that you think is a lot like king david and then i and then i met alan and they're like wait not like that
Yeah, exactly. Like I ever there was they had this very particular Oh no, it was so much fun. Like I had people like come up to me in like aggressive like you're the one who Ashley's been around with. Who are you? What is your story? I'm like, I don't need to tell you like, anything. Like people that I never knew gave a crap. I was like, wait, what? Now? Now you're invested. Yeah, it's it, yeah, it that was one of my favorite things to learn that people used to say that and then they looked at me and went, "Huh?" and I'm like, Gee, I think, thanks. I think, honestly, I don't think it has anything to do with, I, I think everyone thought I was just going to be single for the rest of my life. I really think they were just shocked that I was dating anybody. <laughs> I, I, okay. No, I, genuinely. It's, it's, like, I, think I remember that's rid- they're like, oh, wait, you're dating somebody? I'm like, I'm, I'm sorry, I can't be your convenient single friend anymore. I also loved the whole everyone expected you to date a lumberjack routine that was there and then I came in and it was everything but a lumberjack. And especially like the people that they kept saying like, you're going to date this guy because he's like a lumberjack. And I'm like, he he grew up in Wheaton. Uh, yep. Yep. And, <laughs> and while we were in college too, that's when the term lumber sexual started going around. And so that was like the stereotype everyone thought Ashley was going to be with. And then little old nerdy me, Dancer Allen, <laughs> walks into the scene who likes theater and does radio. <laughs> and so I'm just confused because did they did they just mean f- lumberjack equals flannel? Yes. Yeah. Or ultimately, like they were like, "Where's or... a be- where's a beanie?" <laughs> flannel has a beard, but I'm like, their beard is more manicured uh-huh. than the anything about me. Okay. Yeah. I'm tracking. Yeah. This is Just very weird. Sure on the same it's page. a very weird early aughts time of my life. <laughs> uh-huh. and, it's, and it's a good time to reminisce on this because this Thursday we have been together nine years. Oh, have we re- oh yeah. I yeah. suppose because Halloween's coming Halloween. up. Halloween. Oh. Halloween is nine years. Man. Almost a decade. We've almost been together 10 long years. I mean,. You guys are old. <laughs> I was waiting for that. <laughs> okay, but we are, we are beating around the bush of this this yeah, this yeah. or that question. I mean, ultimately, because oh, I was yeah. just like, I was. It's horrible because like if you try to Google like murderers in the Bible, because I was just looking for like a quick list because I had to quick put this together because I woke up from a nap and I was like, uh, oh shoot. But all that's I was be a getting depressingly long list. <laughs> no, all I was getting were a bunch of like Pathos blog entries of of people trying to hash out their own anger of their evangelical upbringing, and so it was just like a list of like the worst Old Testament Bible passages in which Yahweh was was enacting some sort of retribution, and then they're like, "See how bad this is," and I'm like, "Okay, mm. you're taking it out of context. Let's like fit that back into." Mm-hmm. the rest of scripture. But um so there was like they weren't listing like figures within the Old Testament. They were just only listing the times God got angry at somebody. Mm-hmm. Ultimately. So I wasn't getting what I wanted. So then I had to quick like do a survey of the Old Testament. I was like, "You know what? You know what's a really quick way to do this? Just go to the <laughs> Game of Thrones of the Bible, which is David and his everybody." Yep. And then just start quick skimming so that's how i came up with these three was not any sort of like diligent scholastic research but a quick oh you know who screwed up david you know who else has screwed up all of his sons yep 
So for me, yep. this is a very, very easy answer. And as soon as you started that list, it was very easy for me. It is King David. Because, yes, God will use anyone. Yes, he is a man for God's own heart. Mm -hmm. But also, he left a trail of carnage in his wake because he was just a crappy father Mm -hmm. and was much more concerned about the nation than about his own family. Mm. And there's... Yeah, because doesn't it at some point... I'm not re- remembering in my sleepy haze at the moment, but like, doesn't he also turn a blind eye to a lot of his son's yep. deeds? Yep. 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 Also, the mm. young mercenary years should not be overlooked. Yeah, fair enough. There is a lot of comparison that I can make because I'm this nerd that will make between David and the Chandrian. So <laughs> I will go, make a comparison. I'll go there. <laughs> <laughs> Please unpack that for the audience. Uh, I mean, David, yeah. while he did some good, also ended up having a lot of bad and did a lot of really, really bad things. And I don't know. I'm not going to say he's Haliax, but I think there is a strong case to be made that there are a lot of similarities. Just saying. Anyway, King David's my vote. Kyle Ashley, what about you? Um. All right. So I'll say, just as a as a random aside, because we always have to have those. Um, I really have always found the uh, the Joab Abner story really just sort of fascinating and entertaining. It's just this weird sequence of back and forths and mm-hmm. all this crazy stuff going on, and it's just it's just perfect ex- escalation, you know. Um, so I've always thought that one was a like I hesitate to say like a cool story, but it's good cool narrative. Story. Good story, bro. So you know, <laughs> just let that I'll just let that be as it is. Yeah. Um. Uh. So I think between. David and Amnon. I think I would choose Amnon just because that whole story is terrible mm-hmm. and because I think you get a lot more again from a from a story's perspective. You get a lot more character development from David. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot more like not that excuses him per se, but a lot more that surrounds him to to give you better context for the situation. Fair enough. Ashley. Yeah, I I'm with Kyle on this one. I I have to go with Amnon. I think because remember I forget what class I was in it might have been Old Testament theology, but that that concept of of Amnon seeing the way his own father is and being raised in that household and then still I, I get parental influences have a strong sort of guiding path to how you end up and then there's a lot to unpack but he never gets to the unpacking stage and he's easily influenced by this other kind of manipulative friend so it's kind of like watching just like a mm. really terrible sort of like teen drama where you're just like, how did you not, how did you not, like, figure this, like, there's, like, I just, every time I read this, I'm just like, what, but the why, though, why would you, (laughs) 
The answer's simple, Ashley. He didn't have someone come in with a flannel graph and tell him why all of his ter- his <laughs> actions were terrible. Yeah, and well, and like you see, <laughs> and 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 Kyle's right. You see, like some character development, David, a little bit. Like he gets, he, we at least know he gets angry. So that's a that's a step in the right direction. There's still a lot more that has to happen. I think with David, we see a little bit of a, a, a working through the consequences of his actions and actually like engaging with the things that he's done in a way that um, like this is, as an example, one of the things that I love about the passage in which David is basically talking with God about building the temple and he's getting all gung ho about building the temple. And, and God's like, yeah, sorry, bud, but no, mm-hmm. like I'm not, I'm not having a man of war build my temple. You know, and that's that's a really interesting thing that I think, you know, David is at least engaging, like I said, with the consequences of his actions, and he's forced to at least reflect on those, if not repent of them. Whereas with Amnon, I don't think we really get that. And it's not to say that it might not have happened. We're just not told that part of the story if it did. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and like, Tamara even like, please to him. She's like, please don't do this. Um, like how, where, and how would I carry out my, like carry my shame? Um, but Mm -hmm. he, like, he doesn't even listen to her and he knows that he's stronger than her. So he just carries it out anyway, which is just like, I, I, what I do appreciate, even as horrible as the story is, is the fact that they tell this story. Cause this is something that could have been removed from Mm -hmm. transcripts. They could just be like, well, this just makes things look really bad. Exactly. This just makes him look bad. So Let's just not go into it because it's icky. But instead, it's kept in here and with a surprising amount of detail. And it's not that, oh, I'm really glad the story is in here right. because it's so horrible. I'm I'm glad it's in here because there's a record of it happening and no one's denying that this did happen. And even in, in such a family as, as King David's. Right. Um, so, it's and a- I think because it's real and it it gives us context for the fact that things act like that actually happen mm-hmm. in the real world, you know. And I think if we scrubbed the Bible of those things, yeah, we would have this very well, and we do have this very weird perception of how things should be or you know are, and yet, you know, not have not have a space set aside within Scripture to deal with those actual horrible things of the world, right. Yeah. Well, on that chipper note, hello everyone. This is episode one sixteen of the MinMax podcast. <laughs> I hope you all are well. Um, yes, today is going to be an interesting episode, as you might already guessed, because we are going to be dipping at dip beep 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 dipping that that's this is the mail song now. Uh, we are going to be dipping into the, I don't, what are we, we haven't come up with a name for this yet. I think we just call it the mailbag. But that's, that's just so basic. Like, what are you, a Visco girl? Like, I don't. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, no. I don't know. Isn't Dora the Explorer? We don't have objects that sing to us. We could though. Maybe we should. No. Oh. Man, I regret everything. Maybe, yeah. maybe we should. Maybe the male should become sentient and sing. We'll meet that at a different point because I'm going to get murdered if I go very much further down this road. 
I'm just, I, I don't even remember it, but I'm just imagining us having a parody of the Blue's Clues mail song Exactly. Now. Here's the mail, it never fails. Oh. So, we've had a lot of email over the past couple of weeks, which is fantastic. Some of them are tomish, though. So, so uh, we are going to begin working our way through some of these, and we'll see how far we get. We might have to have a couple part episode on email but we got another one from friend of the show jill ashley do you want to take that one away or at least part of that one away yes yes i would so jill writes us with the intimidating subject line of my formidable questions seem to demand formidable (laughs) answers which was i think in response to our conversation um about the eucharist and she 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 writes Greetings once more from South Dakota. I appreciated your response to my previous email, so I believe it is time to level up the questions. After all, I am a lover of formidable questions. <clears throat> situation one. So there is, this is broken into situations. Six, not par- even like, six parts of this, folks. Yeah. <laughs> situation one. I wanted to bring up the idea of symbolism betwixt theology and nerd culture. Not in so much as discussing the particulars that unite the two, but the concept as a whole. As you know, the Bible is rife with symbol, allegory, and metaphor. Culture itself is rampant with symbol. The world as we know is, as we know it, is built on the symbols we use to communicate. Letters, numbers, and the words are symbolic of the meaning we want to convey. A, A seven is just a broken line unless we agree to treat it with value. A paper note symbolizes value when we call it currency. A pink ribbon has nothing to do with breast cancer except that it does in our culture. Quick aside, Gottlob Frigg, I think, I think that's how you pronounce it, said to never, never to ask for the meaning of a word in isolation, but only in the context of a proposition. And to never to lose sight of the distinction between concept and object. I break the second rule a great deal. But here is an outline of symbol as a term. A symbol is a sound, mark, image, or action that represents, signifies, or alludes to a relationship to some other thing or idea. Metaphor and allegory often being two literary expressions of such. Or to define its effects on the self. A symbol is an energy-evoking and directing agent. Symbol without meaning by Joseph Campbell. Yes, the Campbell quote is there mostly for Kyle's benefit. (laughs) (laughs) validation amazing so then it gets to her question question one so that's not even the question that's all set up (laughs) that's all the groundwork question number one with the context of biblical symbolism and video game, video game action and imagery in mind, what do you think the value of something being symbolic is? Seems fair to make an attempt at an answer on my own part as well. I would argue that the symbol contains some of the intrinsic value of the, of the object or meaning to which it refers. My background is as a painter, so that tends to be the way in which I consider things. One of the first things taught in art school is that nothing is made in a vacuum. That is to say that everything is built with the context of what has come before and what currently exists. That context not only contains art, but embodies all of each culture as the foundation on which an idea or an object is built. This is where Ecclesiastes 1.9 was severely relevant at university. 
If I should create a piece of work with sunflowers as the focus, a relationship to Van Gogh's sunflowers is likely to be created regardless of my authorial intent. Anyone with a bit more art knowledge might also consider Anselm Kiefer's sunflowers prints, or I do not know how to pronounce this guy's name. Ai Weiwei? Sunflower seeds? Weiwei, I believe. Weiwei? Ai Weiwei. Sunflower seeds installation within the same context. Go a step further into the history of the sunflower, and you'll find the Greek story of Clytie, a nymph in love with Apollo, who turned into a sunflower as she sat and craned her neck to watch him race across the sky each day. Depending on the work put in to either embrace or be set apart from the artistic context of the sunflower, my imaginary sunflower contains added information merely by being vaguely related to the thing that has come before. Insert image of sunflowers because I like picture books and large blocks of text tend to be visually uninteresting. (laughs) Okay. Still getting to the question. Things don't (laughs) represent only themselves and their value as a symbol exists in the deepening of information and contextualization. I would even go so far to say that everything symbolizes something and if it doesn't, then it symbolizes that. Drifting from art to video games, I prefer the way A.J. Thompson puts it in his article, The Literary Gamer, Symbolism. Video games have a unique relationship with symbols. In a way, every game is full of them, except or because games are designed to use one concept to represent the other. The health bar on your screen doesn't actually function as your character's well-being, but it represents their health. There are also narrative symbols, like the helmet lying abandoned on the ground in Halo, Reach, which symbolizes the devastating losses and deaths which occur in the game. In the game Portal, the cake was, at first, a representation of success and future reward, which was later revealed to be a false promise. Then it became a symbol of GLaDOS betrayal. From something more of a biblical standpoint, the representation of the cross does not simply illustrate the original object and the actions that occurred then. Instead, it also represents everything that was achieved there and every reason it was necessary in the first place. It represents a new covenant, the promise fulfilled and the promises being fulfilled. It is more than the sum of its parts. It is everything connected to it held in a minimalist form. The rainbow of the f- was a symbol of the covenant made with Noah after the flood. To say that the rainbow is without value because it is only a symbol defeats its, re- <laughs> its raison d'etre. It is of value because it is a symbol. And that leads to the second question. Okay, so <laughs> that's where we need to pause because that go- leads into <laughs> situation two. And I'm trying to find the actual question in the labeled section that says question number one. It is all the way at the top. Okay. <laughs> what do you think the value of something being symbolic is? Okay. Okay, so with all of that... <laughs> It's a great email. I don't want to. I don't want to uh-huh. besmirch this email. It's just so much to unpack, and it's great. But this right. could be its own, you know, postgrad module. Right. Yeah, it's a little brain breaking. Ugh. So, what do we think the value of something being symbolic is? Well, as a, a an upcoming graduate of the Emlet. <laughs> Uh, program in theology, imagination, the arts. This is this is what my answer would be in a in a very like small sort of compact way without 
giving a, a lecture right. series on it, um, is that in us being in relationship to and a reflection of God being made in his image, that our imaginations are a part of the way, a, a part of a, a revelatory process. It's the way that it, it is one way in which God communicates with us, right? And one of the one of the best ways that, I, or one of the best examples I have for this isn't even necessarily like a very specific situation. Um, it's just, there's a play, St. Joan by um, Bernard Shaw. Excuse me. I too am burping. And to paraphrase the scene, when they're interrogating Joan, and she's talking about the saints, um, you know, Catherine and Michael, St. Catherine and St. Michael talking to her, telling her what she has to do. I said, this was all in your head. This was all in your imagination. And the entire play, you're kind of at this like teetering point where you're like, do I believe that St. Joan is doing what is like that she actually has these saints talking to her and telling her what to do is like God actually communicating through her or is she actually kind of crazy? And it always keeps it in that really ambiguous place. Mm. And so you're like, you don't really necessarily know what to think of her because sometimes she's sometimes she's great and really clever. And sometimes you're just going. No, she's nuts and kind of annoying. Um, but in this, in the midst of this interrogation, they're like, "This is all in your head. Stop! You're 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 becoming you're a heretic. We're going to burn you if you don't admit that you're making this stuff up. Um, it's all in your head." And she's like, "Well, of course it's all in my head. That's how God, that's how God communicates to me is through my imagination." And she like totally leans into it. Ultimately, says, "Yes, imagination mm. is a way that God communicates with me." Um, and Jill's right. Symbols carry this this cultural weight and sometimes cultural baggage uh, with them. And I, instead of thinking of that as a bad thing, not that I think that that's what she's communicating, but I think is sometimes when people try to break things down into more simpler parts to to be more direct or clear, then they start to think about um, cultural weight or symbolism being just kind of like a a nuisance to that to that goal or that aim. Right. It's almost just in the way. Yeah, exactly. Instead, I, I find it as a really fascinating tool and a way um, a way to build bridges between communities that wouldn't have necessarily had a way to communicate similar ideas. Because there are a couple times when Alan and I have been talking with British friends and just the way the ways they grew up, things that were valued to them are entirely different from the way we grew up and what's valuable to us. So then having something um, to compare as a symbol has been incredibly helpful. I'm thinking of a time we were talking to our friend Ruthie and we were talking about classism and how being, being a part of a group, that can be a really great thing, but sometimes in certain contexts, being a part of a group, especially if it's an um, a small group can come off as very alienating to people outside that group. And that's never been something she'd considered before because she was always on the inside. And so we were trying to describe situations or, or, or um, social situations in which someone could feel like they're on the outside. Um, and finally we hit one that resonated with her 
but it took like going all the way back and referring to like one very specific situation on a playground that she got it Mm. and how uh, class could be uh, described. But but because where she grew up, there was really only one um, estimation of of class ultimately um, because she never experienced any of the others. So it was a really interesting sort of conversation. So I think symbols are are excellent and necessary. Um, yeah, and the only, really the only way that we can get ideas across, co- cross culturally. culturally. Mm. Yeah, I think it's interesting because in a lot of ways, symbol, I mean, symbolism is its own language, right? It's a, It's a language that is produced by culture but also just sort of ontologically present mm-hmm. and i think you know you were talking actually about about kind of trying to bridge that that gap in communication when when conventional language kind of fails and it, it brought to mind the episode from star trek that's like really widely hailed as like a just a phenomenal episode um, and it was from the next generation, and the episode was titled Darmok, mm. which I don't remember what season it was in, but it was like midway through the show. But the whole thing is that Picard ends up stranded on this planet, or or meets with these aliens, or something like that, and he has no way of communicating with them. They're they're isolated. They're trying to figure out what in the world they're supposed to do, but they can't communicate um, because the universal translator is broken, or just doesn't recognize the language, or whatever. Well. You know, then of course it kind of comes down to that, like trying to find very basic symbols of like holding your hand up to your mouth to say like food or mm-hmm. hunger or you know whatever things like that, where you can communicate ideas just based on on need. And I think you know it's different when you're talking in a, in a sci-fi realm, but um, you think about just early pioneers meeting Native Americans or any any sort of you know, global expansion in which people ran into new groups that they didn't know or understand and couldn't communicate with there, there had to have been these sort of sequences of like awkward trial and error in, you know, (laughs) I need food. You give me food. I'll give you, you know, clothes, Mm -hmm. whatever. Um, and that, that episode is so fascinating because what Picard ultimately kind of figures out is that their language is actually built on fragments of of an epic poem about like this this ancient hero from their race. So like everything, the only way that they really communicate is by sort of retelling just bits and pieces of this this ancient narrative. And so finally, Picard starts to kind of pick up on um what's happening and then the the alien basically like wants him to tell a story from from earth and so uh picard ends up using the epic of gilgamesh to kind of draw some similar elements so that's how they're finally able to communicate is by just rehashing old stories um so i think at the heart of of the question i would say the value of symbol is everything because symbol is itself a language that can transcend language Mm -hmm. okay situation number two context and culture change immensely from place to place and year to year portal makes me consider cake differently i love cake but the cake is a lie yes it is i can't love a lie look again at the rainbow 
Once known to some as a covenant, to wear a rainbow as a part of your attire is now to make a political statement. In the contemporary American culture, the Confederate flag is often a source of contention. Flags are created as symbols for places, but this one is also associated with horrendous violence, racism, and slavery, while still being attributed to heritage and pride. It is, point, it is the point of strife because we do not agree on its symbolic meaning. So this leads to question two. How do you pin symbolic context to a thing or idea when civilization and language is just as alive as the people of which it consists? I regret trying to answer my own questions. <laughs> Society's value changes are why context analysis is consequentially vital to biblical study. We ask about the text that surrounds a verse, the author of the book, when it was written, and to whom it was written. Historical, cultural, and literary framework are necessary to not be led astray. With the Bible being so integral a text, it is not the worst ask to dig into the substance of those questions. But culture has just as rich of a history of information, but not nearly as demanding of study. In society, only some things will hold up through time. We think of Shakespeare and the cultural culture and politics he lived through, but not near as much the poets and playwrights that inspired his work. So in some ways, I believe the artist or creator of, of work should try to be cognizant and vocal about what they draw inspiration from. But in trying to do that with my own work, there is usually an asinine series of repetitive, well, um, and you see, before I can pull together something vaguely rational, but not anywhere near indicative of the breadth of ideas that I have crossed paths with. Back to square one, I suppose. Honestly, this is as concise as I'm capable of being, and I'm sorry it's terribly long. Also, sorry, I use the word symbol in context far too often, but sometimes a synonym just won't do. God bless Jill Goodrich. Okay, so that's the second half. So going back to her question, how do you pin symbolic context to a thing or idea when civilization and language is just as alive as the people of which it consists? Jill, I will say you have leveled up your questions. These are, these are deep and intense, so good on you. Mm -hmm. this, is, this is good stuff. Mm-hmm. I think it's a tricky one trying to pin, like trying to pin symbolic context. I think, I think you, you put, you hit the nail on the head with the tension of it and that what holds meaning now may not necessarily hold meaning in the future. What held historical value at one context will just as easily be lost in a couple hundred years and we will no longer understand what things meant like for instance from the technology world since we've gone there a little bit with video games a traditional floppy disk will hold a very set amount of meaning for some of us who had to use the big five and a half inch giant floppy disks you hand that to someone now and they don't even know what it is so for us who had to back things up on that that data system you can't even read the damn thing now <laughs> <laughs> so it it the value of that has changed. The symbolic meaning of that has changed because you can no longer load Oregon Trail up off of that disk to play on your computer. And in the same way, I think it changes with art and language. I mean, look at the way that language has changed over the years. Look at the way that contributions to language have changed. And even like the type of words 
have changed. You look back to when Shakespeare is writing and adding so many words into the common lexicon of language, and then you contrast that with words like fleek and things that have entered the public consciousness over the past 10 years. Mm-hmm. And even that, even the type of word, even the, I, I, I don't want to go say caliber of the word, because I think that's... That, well, yeah, because that places value on... Exactly. It, it makes a value judgment on the word. But the, yeah, just that even the types of words and language have changed in the way that they're... Like, it, like the meanings that they hold have changed. Mm-hmm. And they're, it's almost designed as not throwaway language, but it just seems like that there's certain words, like they're designed and understood that it's going to hold a very it's going to hold value for a very short amount of time and then it's going to pass out of public consciousness. You're just talking about slang? I guess, yeah. That, yeah, that's the word I'm... Because there's the, plenty of slang that was used in the 90s as, that isn't used today. Like, people don't say tubular. I don't even know if people said tubular all that frequently right. in, the, in the 80s and 90s. It was at least used in the media to suggest that people were saying it. But people, yeah. I mean, it, if Sh- anyone actually tried to bring that back, it wouldn't happen. Shout out to our California friends. <laughs> When it's funny, the the phrase on fleek was actually um, created by a woman who was making a vine, who was just like talking about how her eyebrows were on fleek and she was like ready to go out. And when later interviewed after that phrase took off, she was like, I was just talking like crap, basically. I was just like saying stuff and that just came out. I didn't, she had no intention of making Uh something that was, you know, viral. Um which I find hilarious because then it was just picked up by a bunch of musicians, rappers and such. And then other people through their music mm-hmm. picked it up, picked it up. And, and now it is this phrase that people use that I've certainly used. That I just think is so funny. Um, so slang is an interesting one. Yeah. I mean, I think when it comes to the idea of trying to sort of lock in symbolic meaning, I, I, it just, I just don't think it holds because as, as Jill said, the symbol is evolving in the same way that the language is evolving in the same way that the culture is evolving in the same way that the people are evolving, right? Like it's, it's all a very fluid sort of non distinct set of, of terms that you're working with. And it's just reality because I mean, even slang is a really good way to approach it, but I mean, how many words from a hundred years ago that aren't even necessarily slang words or just words that we don't use or from 200 years or 300 years, you know, like language just naturally evolves as, as people in culture naturally evolve and, and, you know, evolve even in the sense of just time passes, things change, Mm -hmm. not necessarily, you know, to imply some sort of like hierarchy to, to that system. It's just a reality of, of in any given culture, change is a given you know things things are going to progress in one form or another and there are you know we we wouldn't have a word computer until we had a thing computer and we needed to put a name to it right a thing that computes Mm -hmm. now we have a computer you know and now it's it's common vernacular and things like that and that's just i think that's just a reality and so i think there's a certain degree to which we have to accept. And I like, you know, even thinking about this in terms of biblical studies and stuff like that, there's a certain degree to which we have to accept. Yes, we have a responsibility to, to do our best to understand and engage with the cultural contexts and the, the other, you know, various elements of context that go into 
you know, whether it's the Bible or any other work of literature. But at the end of the day, there's only so much of the the original context of that that we're going to be able to grasp because we exist in a different culture with a different language and, and so on and so forth. And, you know, you talk about in biblical hermeneutics all the time how much is just lost in translation. And you look at things like the Psalms and and the little plays on words that we're very familiar with um, you know, in our, our own poetry and things like that, that we would catch if it were a poem that was originally written in English that we have no clue about, you know, even if we're looking at the original language that the Psalms are written in, because there are just cultural things that we're just not going to pick up on because we're not a part of that culture. So it's almost as if there's like a certain percentage of of the the sheer amount that something can communicate that can never be communicated depending on how the contexts align. And it's just a whole thing. So I think, I think we just have to accept at the end of the day, you can't, you know, you're not, you're never going to get a hundred percent of, of what could have been communicated by a thing. You just do your best to approach as much of it as you can given the limitations of your context. Yeah, well, and I think that's especially true now that we have online culture and people can, I think this this pressure to understand the whole of a thing is felt more than it ever has been because we have yes, the thing agreed. that computes right in front of us all the time, whether you have your laptop or your cell phone. So everyone feels the pressure to know all things at all times because... Mm-hmm. In some capacity, they could, if they really wanted to try, they could, they could, they could make that attempt, right? Um, right? Would they necessarily be able to understand everything that they're reading up on in trying to attempt make that attempt? Not so much. You need more time to do that, but um, there's certainly that anxiety that's I think felt and is more prevalent um, to try to understand the whole of thing. Um, perpetually and I think that's the that's a particular struggle of religious communities now in trying to in in the way that that faith is being interrogated online so rapidly but oftentimes with that lack of depth that you're talking about and 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 a lot of the time what is missing as you said is that understanding of the uh, language um, and that's that's part of why I really wish that people were, were had to in all denominations and all faiths had to know the language before they could go on interpreting things. Um, it's, right. It's it's so it's so frustrating um, when you think you're getting into a really good conversation and you're like, oh yeah, what's what does this word mean again? Like, oh I don't, oh I don't know. I just have like a an ESV or whatever. And you're like so you yeah. didn't even like look it up in in anything like it's it's one thing if you don't if you just don't know it because you haven't taken a class yet like that's fine i i don't know greek or hebrew yet plan on taking them just haven't had an opportunity to yet uh but mm-hmm. but make make the effort and so i think it's interesting in faith communities right now as they're trying to navigate that tension between like the future focused sort of online communities which some have have the right of it in trying to be healthy spaces for people to interrogate these things, and then some kind of go rabid, sort of, unfortunately, like cancerous about it. 
So mm. trying to interact with those spaces, but then also being rooted in tradition. And I'm 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 more trad than than most, um, admittedly. But I think that's why I really like speaking of symbols, like the idea of a tree as a symbol for a faith community in the sense of like it being rooted in tradition. So rooted, anchored down, but then also having the capacity mm-hmm. to grow upward and stretch upward towards more. So yep. I think we need to be gracious and optimistic about the future um, for that growth to continue, but also to be able to be fed by what we gain by being rooted. Yeah, that's what I got. <laughs> I thought I had another thing, but that, that's it. <laughs> That's what I got. But oh, um, I do really empathize with with what Jill says about trying to um, think about her own art and the the other forms or artists that she comes across that has influenced her own art form. And again, I think because we're inundated with so much media and so much art now, it's real. It's near impossible to know exactly at what point, what time, people are influenced by certain things. I think. You know, in Shakespeare's time, it was a little easier. There were only so many playwrights and so many poets. And sure, he probably interfaced with a, a bunch of others that are unnamed. But, you know, we know the big ones, right? Um, right. But now it's just like... And you don't have a capacity to just go dig up the most obscure thing possible, you know, <laughs> that somebody now has this huge passion for and you're stepping all over without knowing it because, you know, nobody's ever heard of insert obscure thing here right exactly and and you and you tend to see trends between writers of that time pretty easily you can pick up right. on when things are, are quoted or paraphrased upon or or even being satirized which is peak shakespeare right. freaking love it um but i mean yeah today i mean if you're really hardcore about it and again that's what's great about nerds and geeks is we typically know the the developers and the comic book writers and um and designers and such that we are really affected by we we know those names typically because we put we we right. go elbow deep um like i know when i'm looking at a kelly sue deconic comic book and and she's typically who who i'm you know influenced by when it comes to my my graphic novel and comic book tastes Test followers, another one. But as far as other forms of media, like when I'm writing my own plays, I'm like, yeah, I can hand, I can rattle off a handful of, of names of playwrights. But as far as which one in particular really influences my own writing, F if I know. Because <laughs> at some mm-hmm. point you just have read so many. You really, right. oh, it's a lot. Yeah, I think there's something to be said, too, that like trying to put things in context and analyzing your own art style. I've been a little bit more quiet because I've been chewing on that question this episode because there's like, and you guys, it it tends to be more true, and correct me if I'm wrong, you two, because you guys do this more than I do. It tends to be more true of writers in that you, writers can be more quote unquote self-taught. Like you, you learn, you can learn some of the rules, but you can generate your, a lot of your own stories in more of a vacuum. Like you'll, you'll pull from some sources and you'll be able, you'll, you might play on tropes and avoid tropes. But I know one of the big kind of things that is huge in the photo community is like this whole myth of I'm a, I'm a self-taught photographer and I just learned to use the things that I liked and I taught myself. 
Sorry, I'm getting really intentionally. Uh, I'm taking a shot there because I hear that so so often. But uh, unless you have lived in a world where you've never seen Instagram, you've never looked up a photo on the internet, you've never Googled how do I do something, you are not self-taught. Being self-taught in the in the age of the internet is a myth. It is one hundred percent a myth. And so trying yeah. to say that you've developed your own style, and frankly, the whole myth of finding your photographic voice and everyone being so freaking obsessed with having to find your own style, I think that's all contextual. And I think that's all contextual based on the type of stuff that you like. And people, as you were saying, Ashley, people tend to try to go deep and they try to dig in and try to learn everything, and they get so mired in the learning of all the things that they forget to do the thing. Yeah, and, well, because it becomes an analysis paralysis. Like that's what I, that's when that's right. maybe like a slight issue I take with your your um, assertion that writers can be self taught. I guess that's fair. I hadn't really, really thought that through. Yeah, well, because because it's not because yeah, it's I would not say your. I agree with yeah, because it's 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 not your art form, and no, so it it's, makes it's sense. Not my medium. It, so it makes sense, but th- I mean, right. there are so many times when I'm like, okay, I'm going to take the day to read, you know, a, a set of plays by this one playwright, and after I get done, even if it's been a really good reading session, and I've taken a ton of notes, and I'm really invested and and feel inspired, sometimes it becomes analysis paralysis. I'm like, wow, they did this so well. That's so clever. Mm-hmm. How could I ever come up with something as clever as that? And so then you you Yo. get overwhelmed. And then when you try to write yourself, it just ends up becoming echoes of what you've just read. Or it's the same plot line entirely. Um, the same types of characters. So then I have to pull myself out of that, not read for a bit, just kind of like walk around and remember what people are like for a while. Take notes. My best writing has been done on the bus just from watching people and seeing how people act around one another actually, as opposed to, you know, Mm. when I force situations on them. Um, But that's typically because when I'm writing, I'm writing for more modern, you know, situations as opposed to, you know, an arsenic and old lace murder mystery or, um, Mm. you know, some sort of comedy or something like that. I'm, I'm, I'm not writing period pieces. I'm writing more modern, even with some of the stuff that Jen and I are writing that's in, you know, invested in women's narratives in the Bible. Um, Because, yeah, then the, even tropes, tropes themselves are, are symbols of things within narrative that we keep coming back to, which is always really interesting. And Kyle, I'm sure you've run into this with your own writing. Oh, yeah. No, I, I, I would say no one can truly claim to be original ever. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, there's just you cannot detach yourself from from some sort of context. And that's the reality of it. There's. You know, no matter what you do, you are influenced by something. I mean, yeah. you were raised by someone or something. You were set in a context of of something. You know, mm-hmm. even if even if that means you were raised by apes, that's itself a context. And there are there is a culture in play there. There is a a set of rules that you had to follow. You know, it, I mean, even the natural world has a set of rules that have to be followed. And there's no there's no escaping from that. And it you know I I, I think people can get discouraged by the idea of, oh, there's nothing original. And it's, I would say it's true insofar that everything that's being created comes from somewhere that isn't necessarily to say that it's just a whole lot of, of 
you know, recycling. I think there there is newness in the way that things are created and in the way that they engage with the culture in which they're created. And I think that's where where the sense of originality really comes from. But at the end of the day, like it was influenced by something. And I think to to discredit that is is the height of hubris. Mm. Well, on that note, we would love to hear what you guys have to say on this. MinMaxPod on the socials, uh, minmaxpod at gmail.com, 773-789-9369 is the voicemail number for voicemails three minutes or less. Uh, you can uh, visit us at minmaxpod.com. Remember, we have a Patreon, patreon.com slash minmaxpod. Um, yeah, we'd love to hear what you have to say on Jill's Good Questions. Look forward to hearing from you guys soon. And next week, see you guys later.